One of the reasons I love music so much is it seems to be universal in its appeal. It can speak without words. I've been in countries where I've picked up a guitar and um, didn't play anything really good. And yet people like hearing music. Music can move us. It is meant to do exactly that. There's another language that I think is universal. That's the language of pain. Though we don't like to hear its message, it certainly speaks loud and clear when it comes. C.S. Lewis said, and this is probably his most famous saying, probably quoted more than anything else. In fact, in the recent movie Shadowlands, a couple years back, I think it opened up with the scene where C.S. Lewis was depicted as saying, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but God shouts to us in our pain. Suffering, said C.S. Lewis, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The Jews also used to have a saying. It became a proverb among them, though it's not in the Bible. Not to have had pain is not to have been human. Even Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, said, we cannot learn without pain. When we hear that, we cannot learn without pain, we wonder, well, isn't there a better way to learn? Pain is such a cruel teacher. Uh, can't you just buy a book to learn some of the lessons? Well, some lessons can be learned from a book, but there are other lessons, as you know, that only experience can teach you. You can't learn it from a book. You can't go to a bookstore and find the newest thing on this and learn some lessons. For instance, as parents, we tell our children, don't touch that stove or that cup of coffee. They want to know why, and your rationale is, it's hot. Well, at first, a child doesn't understand what hot means. You can't just teach what hot is and appeal to the intellect. You have to appeal to the experience. Sooner or later, he's going to have to learn by experience what it is to be hot. And so sooner or later, that child is going to touch or put his hand inside the coffee or touch the stove. And the message will be loud and clear. It will register, oh, that is what they meant by hot. Now I understand. It comes by experience. The Victorian preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said, I owe more to the fire and the hammer and the file than to anything else in my Lord's workshop. I sometimes question whether I have ever learned anything except through the rod. When my schoolroom is darkened, I see the most." Of course, we also have met people who, because of their suffering, have a deep character that you can only get through pain. You cannot get through books. You cannot get through any other life experience except the school of pain. Now, we come to this second letter in chapter 2 to the church of Smyrna. Jesus writes to a group of people in pain, but they are suffering the pain of persecution. It's not your ordinary run-of-the-mill suffering. And so while we can relate to the condition of suffering, the reason for their suffering, we may part company right here. And that's because of the persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first, the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation, and poverty, 
but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which are about, you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about, to be, is about to throw some of you into prison, that you will be tested and have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Whenever we suffer, we have a choice. No matter where the source of the pain comes from, be it persecution or be it a physical suffering, whatever, we have a choice at the point of suffering, a road to walk down. We will either become a better person because of it or we will become a bitter person because of it. We can allow pain to be a chisel to shape us or a heavy stone that will crush us and make us bitter forever. We've met both kinds of people, haven't we? We've met, the, met those people who are more refined by suffering and others who are just angry and bitter and never release it. Bitter or better. Pain is inevitable. Misery is optional. Jesus encourages this church to be faithful even to the point of death. We notice that there's only four verses in this letter. It's a short letter. In fact, I've called it a postcard, not a letter. These four sentences could fit on the back of a postcard. It's a message to the church of Smyrna. And I think it's significant that the group that is suffering has the shortest letter. You know, I've learned that when people are going through pain, they don't need volumes of information. In fact, the rule at funerals, if you ever preach a funeral, be short, be direct, be sensitive. Jesus is all three to this church at Smyrna. He is sensitive, he is direct, he is brief. First of all, let's look at the present condition. Let me tell you about Ephesus. Excuse me, that was last week. Let me tell you about Smyrna so we can understand their condition. Smyrna wasn't far from Ephesus, only 40 miles north. It was a very prosperous city, Greek city that became a Roman city. Uh, the modern city of Smyrna is called Izmir. It's in Turkey. Uh, that was the town where Aristotle Onassis had his huge shipping industry out of because there's a natural harbor in Smyrna. Because of its natural harbor, it became on the trade route from east to west, and the chief export of the city of Smyrna, for which it was actually named after, is myrrh. Myrrh in Greek is the name Smyrna. Myrrh is that resin that is aromatic. It's used in perfume. It's also used in embalming fluid to embalm the dead. It is something that gives off a beautiful scent only when it is crushed. And I think it's very interesting that the church that Jesus writes to in suffering is the church that is being crushed, and yet they give off a beautiful aroma in their suffering because they are faithful to God. The city of Myrrh. The town boasted in being called the lovely one because of their prosperity, their wealth. The lovely one, the crown of Ionia, the ornament of Asia. Homer was born in that city. Alexander the Great rebuilt it that it might become the model city for everyone in that area to marvel at. It was filled with Greek pride as well as Roman arrogance as well as Christian persecution. Going down the list, Jesus says, I know your tribulation. The word is a strong word. 
It's the word thalipsis in the original language. It means to be crushed. And the word picture is of a heavy stone that would be set upon wheat that by the pressure, the stress, it might crush and grind the wheat. Or the stone that would be placed to squeeze the juice out of grapes. I know the stress, the pressure. And of course the pressure was due to the persecution that they received from the rest of the people in Smyrna. If you wanted to get sort of a bird's eye picture of not only the layout of the city, but the reason they were being persecuted, you would have to picture a huge city filled with all sorts of shrines and temples. There was one major street that ran from the port of Ephesus all the way through town and ended up at the Acropolis on Mount Pegas there in Smyrna. It was called the Golden Street. It was dotted with the Temple of Asclepius, Aphrodite, Apollo, Zeus, all sorts of gods and goddesses were worshipped in their own private temples. And because there was such a glut of these pagan Greek cults, and they worshipped the Greek pantheon, that is, many gods, Christians came along and were very exclusive. We worship one God. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. It got them into trouble. Also, Smyrna was the center of what we noted last week, we called it emperor worship. They actually deified the Caesar and they worshiped him as a god. And what is interesting about Smyrna is that back in about 195 BC, Smyrna was the first city to build a huge temple to the goddess of Rome called Dea Roma. And because Rome marveled at the allegiance to emperor worship, when six cities were competing to build a huge monument and a temple to Tiberius Caesar, guess who won the competition? Smyrna. So here's a place where it was the center in the eastern part of the Roman Empire to worship Caesar. Here was the place that was glutted with all sorts of worship of the Greek pantheon. And here come a group of Christians. And because they are exclusive in their worship, they get persecuted, pressured, stressed. The tribulation of the world falls upon them. Now, we mentioned, I think, that once a year, the Roman citizen would stand before a bust of Caesar, usually in a temple of Caesar, and with a pinch of incense in a sacrificial fire, they would say, Caesar Curios. They'd have to say that. It meant Caesar is the Lord. Christian would, if anything, say, no, he's not. Jesus Christ is Lord. When they did that, they were marked as traitors, political insurrectionists, and they got in trouble for it. Next, Jesus notes their poverty. The social life, the economic life of all of these Greek cities was tied to the worship of their cults. So let's say you worked as a silversmith or you worked in the shipping docks. Each set of workers had its own guild. Each guild had its own patron god or goddess in the Greek pantheon. And so that's how you begin your work day, your work week, was by some kind of gilded allegiance to the gods of the Greek pantheon. Well, Christians refused to go along with this nonsense, so they were cut off from even the right to make a living. And so when it says, I know your poverty, it's not, oh, you poor thing. It's as I know your abject poverty. You are so poor because the people in Smyrna won't even let you work solely because you are a Christian. 
Now, folks, we may be persecuted for our faith somewhat, but very minimally in comparison to this. I've been threatened. My life has been threatened because I preached the gospel. But I think it's just been sort of a, uh, you know, a mild kind of a thing in comparison to not having a job, a roof over your head, any source of income at all, just for being a Christian. I want you to notice something before we move on in the list. Jesus does not say, I know your poverty and you shouldn't have it. I know your poverty, but you ought to be prosperous. And if you only had enough faith and lived the victorious life, you'd have all of the wealth. You'd be the wealthiest, most awesome because of your faith. It's not it at all. Yet, there is the misguided doctrine that floats around, even in this day and age, that you can have a new and improved Christianity. It's almost like, well, we've got the original brand over here. Oh, but this is the new age. We have the new and improved Christianity. We've added painkillers to it. Jesus never offers people that insipid form of painless Christianity. Nor is that faith to walk through life from victory to victory. Victory means you've had a battle. You've won, but you've been in the fight. Even in the chapter of faith there in Hebrews 11 is it gives all of the exploits of faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho came down. By faith, people were raised from the dead. There's a little P.S. inserted into that chapter. Hebrews 11, right around verse 35, it says these words. Others were tortured. This is in the chapter of faith. They did not accept deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mocking, scourgings, chains, imprisonments. They were stoned they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Jesus says, I know all about that, your present condition. Next, he mentions the antagonism they received. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews but are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. One of the tragedies of history, all of history, is religious persecution. That is, a major religious group, because they disagree with another, will persecute them. It happens in virtually every group. And if we want to be real honest, Christianity historically has been one of the biggest offenders. The whole reason for the Crusades was to rid the Holy Land of the scum they killed Christ, we'll kill them, we'll take over. That's why to sing in this day and age around Jewish people, onward Christian soldiers, which is reminiscent of that, is not a good thing. Because Jews to this day still see Christians as the enemy because of the history. And we have to admit it. But in this day and age, before the Crusades, the persecution was against the Christian church, and a lot of it came from the Jewish community because many of the Jews were wealthy, they had the ears of the Roman government, and they would circulate papers and reports, rumors of what Christians were like. It upset the Roman Empire, and persecution came. The first Roman emperor to persecute Christians was Caesar Nero. Incidentally, people called him the beast because of his persecution against them. 
One of the major reasons Caesar Nero was so angry at people who loved Jesus Christ is he had two advisors who had his ear. Their names were Alturus and Papea. They were both Jewish proselytes. And they would tell Caesar all sorts of stories about these Christians. And they got in trouble for it. Notice also in verse 10, prison and death are mentioned as their condition. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. You will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. The chapter 2 and 3 that has the seven letters to the seven churches, each of the letters is addressed to the angel at the church. And here, the angel at the church of Smyrna. Remember we mentioned a couple weeks ago the word angel means messenger. It could mean a heavenly messenger, an angel, but it could also mean an earthly messenger, like the guy who would take the letter to the different places, or the pastor or the elder of the local assembly. Now, if that's true, that these letters were received by the local pastor of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, well, we know who that was. When John wrote this, one of John's disciples, somebody that he tutored, that he discipled personally, was called Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop, the pastor at Smyrna. And he was persecuted. In fact, I'm sure if he was the one to read this before he read it to the church, it would have been an awesome comfort to him, knowing that Jesus knows what he is about to suffer and the death he's about to face. In February 22nd, 156 A.D., Polycarp fled the city of Smyrna. The reason he left is the Christians said, Get out, man, they're going to kill you. They don't like you because you're the leader here. He did. They found him. They arrested him. He went willingly. He came back into the city of Smyrna in a chariot of the proconsul. And they brought him into the arena, this huge theater where he was going to stand trial, not only before the Romans, but before a crowd that had gathered. And they were urging him the whole time, take it back, man, take it back. Recant. And as they were going in, the judge looked at him and said, have pity on your old age. Recant. Say Caesar is Lord. Deny your Christ. Polycarp said, let me tell you something. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has never let me down. How can I deny him now? And the guy got livid. He said, I have beasts that I will call. Polycarp said, what are you waiting for? Call them. He said, the fire will burn around you, because they plan to burn him at the stake. We will burn you in the fire. You will be consumed. Polycarp said, that fire will be temporary but you will face an eternal fire. And again, he said, what are you waiting for? Well, they lit the fire around him. And according to Irenaeus, the church historian, the fire burned around him but not on him as an arch that would go over his body. And it burned around him and didn't touch him. And they noticed that. The proconsul gave an order to a soldier to take a dagger out and stab Polycarp in the side, which he did, and the blood flowed all over that pyre that was burning extinguished the flame, at least the records say, and he died because of loss of blood rather than being burned to death. That's the testimony that he left. 
Now we notice here that Jesus said, you will be thrown into this persecution, this prison, this tribulation for 10 days. It could be many commentators believe that it is prophetic of the 10 major, and there were 10 major persecutions, episodes of persecution between the 2nd and the 4th century that happened to these early Christians. So if Ephesus represents the apostolic church, Smyrna would represent the suffering church between the 2nd and the 4th century. If you go to Rome today, you'll still see the catacombs where Christians were forced underground because of their faith. Caesar Nero, that beast, was fond of taking Christians, tying them up to poles, putting pitch on their bodies, and lighting them as living torches to light his gardens at night. Then they would take animals, the skins of animals, and they would wrap Christians with the skins of animals, sew them up, and give them to wild beasts to eat them alive. That's the kind of persecution that these Christians faced. Now, you say, well, boy, we don't see that happening today. Well, you're right and you're wrong. We see it not here. But there are parts of the world where Christians still suffer. And they still suffer major persecution. In fact, if you took all of the Christians worldwide, all of us together, all in the world, one out of every 200 Christians can be expected to be martyred in their lifetime. Now, most of it's not going to happen in the United States, at least presently. It might change. But there are parts of the world where persecution is so intense. I heard of a couple this week. One happened in Rwanda. A pastor who was a Hutu pastor was trying to reconcile the tribes back together. The Tutsis and the Hutus, you know there's been a civil war the last few years, several years actually, it goes way back. He was a Christian and the Hutus were angry that this man would try to reconcile people, but he tried to do it through Jesus Christ. They murdered him. They killed him in his own home with his two-year-old daughter, his father and mother-in-law and other relatives. He was 40 years old when he died just recently. But before he died, he had this huge campaign in his region where 1,600 people repented of their sins, gave their lives to Jesus Christ, and were reconciled together. That's the legacy and the testimony he left. Now, let's move from the condition that Jesus knows about to the counsel that he gives them. He says in verse 10, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Don't be afraid. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. You will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Would you notice that Jesus offers no solution to their pain? He doesn't say, listen, I know your pain, and don't worry, I'm going to make sure that it stops. No, in fact, he predicts it will get worse. He simply says, don't be afraid and be faithful. You are about to suffer worse. You are about to be cast into prison. You are about to face death. Do not be afraid. Do be faithful. If you are faithful... If, in the midst of any persecution, ire, resentment, antagonism that you get from people around you for being a Christian, if you are faithful, 
you won't alleviate the problem. You'll only make it worse, right? If you want to stop the persecution, you stop the testimony. If you want to stop the persecution and not have the world angry at you, don't be a good witness. Retreat, and the world will stop. Jesus says, my counsel is you don't be afraid. And the word in the original is stop the activity already going on of fear. Stop being fretful. Do be faithful. Now, if only these Christians had a different strategy, they could escape all this. Let's say they were to approach it this way. Well, we believe in Jesus, but we also acknowledge all of the gods of the Greek pantheon. We acknowledge Poseidon and Apollos and Zeus and uh, the emperor. And we'd like to place Jesus as one of the gods in the Greek pantheon. The Smyrnans would say, great, we have no problem with you. We already are idol worshipers. Why not have another god to add to it? But the moment the Christian said, we will exclusively worship Jesus Christ alone, the only true God, that's what got them into trouble. But Paul promised those who live godly, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what will they suffer? Persecution. It was a promise. Everyone who lives godly will suffer persecution. You could say, well, wait a minute. Shouldn't God protect us? Why doesn't God protect people when they're witnessing for him? God owes it to him, right? Wrong. Be faithful unto death. Do you remember that man whom the disciples noticed as they were walking? He was blind. He was born blind. They said, Jesus... Whose sin caused this blindness? Was it his personal sin or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus' answer was staggering. He said it was neither sin, but for the glory of God. And Jesus healed him. With that in mind, listen to what a Christian leader wrote who was in Nicaragua, speaking of the persecution and their future. This pastor said, It's the strangest thing. But where the war has been the bloodiest, where the needs are the most desperate, this is where the church has grown the most. Yes, brethren become martyrs. Yet the heavier the cross, the more powerful the resurrection. Then he told of a church that was kind of banished. They closed the church and the people scattered. But he said all of the church members, it was just a small group, 15 or so, all of the church members started their own home Bible study, their own little fellowship, and it grew into 15 separate churches. So instead of just one testimony, now there are 15 lights in the area. And he concluded by saying, from that cross, the power of the resurrection was indeed made manifest. All right, now let's turn the camera on us. Here we are today. We live in our society. We're Christians. When was the last time we were persecuted? And what kind of persecution was it? And why is it that we are not as persecuted as others? Now, I'm sure you're saying, this isn't the kind of message I wanted to hear this morning. Why don't we get persecuted? A couple of reasons. We live in a society that boasts of religious tolerance. It's interesting. I think it's sort of a hypocrisy. They want to say, well, we're so tolerant, but they won't tolerate those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. 
They won't tolerate that narrow road. And that's all right. They shouldn't have to tolerate that. If they're of the world, they're not going to love us. But they want to boast in tolerance. So there is this semblage, at least right now, of, of tolerance. But there is perhaps another reason I think we ought to consider. Perhaps the church is not persecuted because of compromise. We have tried so long to fit in to be just like the world so that the world would say, well, there's really no difference, so we'll become a Christian. It doesn't work that way. You see, as long as we speak their language, love their values, have their agenda, they'll think we're A-OK. -okay. But the minute we don't have their language, don't have their agenda, we're not okay. As long as we are pro-choice, pro-homosexual, pro-every religion on the earth being always to God, as long as you're not exclusive about who Jesus Christ is, they'll pat you on the back. But when you say Jesus and Jesus alone is the way, they're not going to write you nice letters or say nice things about you. You will invite the wrath of the world. Perhaps our lives don't challenge the unbelievers enough. As John Stott said, we are respectable, we are conventional, we are inoffensive, we are ineffective. We like soft music, soft lights, soft sermons, and it produces soft Christians. Okay, now let's suppose the Christian church in our culture decided to stand up and say, enough of this. We'll raise the standard of righteousness. We will live biblically. We will love biblically. We will proclaim the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ without reservation. What will be the result? I'll tell you what will be the result. You will be called narrow, unloving, Victorian, bigoted, and all sorts of things. In other words, the church will find itself where it belongs, outside of the favor of the world. Jesus, our Savior, said, Beware if the world speaks well of you. I am not advocating that we be cruel and loveless and try to get persecuted. It's like, okay, listen, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to watch this. I'm going to tick this unbeliever off. Watch this. And then they'd say something to us, and we'd go, Oh, right. I feel so good I've been persecuted. That is not the idea I'm trying to get across. Jesus said if you're going to be persecuted, it's for righteousness' sake, not obnoxiousness' sake, not goofiness' sake or weirdness' sake. Make sure it's because of righteousness. It's because you love God and you're not ashamed of Him. If you love God and you're not ashamed of Him, they won't love you. But if, while you love God, and while they mistreat you, and while they say things evil about you, and circulate rumors about you, if, while you go through that, you endure the persecution, you will give them a testimony unlike anything else. Johnny Erickson Tata, you probably know, suffered an accident. She's a quadriplegic today. And she has suffered all of her most of her adult existence. Though she writes this about that kind of suffering, I think it would also be true with persecution. She says, The way you and I handle our big and little trials makes the world pause in its frantic and headlong pursuits. Our godly response to these obstacles and perplexities in our lives literally kicks the psychological crutches right out from under the skeptic. 
the unbeliever can no longer refuse to face the reality of our faith. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, right? Another translation colors it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. I heard of a guy from Brooklyn, New York. His name, last name was Kelly. He went to court and had a, his name changed to Feinberg. The year after he went to court, had his name changed to Vincini. The next year he had his name changed to Suarez. The third time the judge says, are you trying to make a mockery of this court, sir? He said, no, sir, I'm not trying to make a mockery, but my neighborhood keeps changing. <laughs> so in trying to fit in, I will change according to whatever they, I'll speak their language, so to speak, so as to fit in. That's a humorous little story, but I wonder if many times we don't think that way. We think, well, my society keeps changing, so I'll change my values to accommodate my society. Well, there is some consolation that Jesus gives to the suffering church, and this is what we'll close with. First of all, that Jesus has been there, and he knows everything they're going through. He opens up by saying this. These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his... Oh, that's Ephesus. That's verse 1. Excuse me. These things, says, verse 8, the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, I want you just to notice some, keep it in your mind for the following studies. Every introduction Jesus gives to these seven churches, he pulls out of the vision given already in chapter 1. And he pulls out different elements. Isn't it interesting that to the suffering church facing death, he introduces himself as the one who has already died and came to life? And he says, I know what you're going through because I did die and I did come to life. The word here, I know, is... Oida, I know by experience, not by observation. I've been there. I've done that. I know what it's like to be persecuted, to be in poverty. I know what it's like to be slandered. I know what it's like to suffer death. And because I know and because I've been there, I'm the first, I'm the last. I'll be there at the beginning, the middle, and the end of what you're going through. That was comfort to them. Years ago, and I mean years ago, I mean it's before any of us were on planet Earth, in the ancient times, when people would sail and explore the world, there were many countries on maps that were unknown. In fact, maps were just drawn as blobs of countries. People didn't really know how to define them. And oftentimes, those who were the explorers would have their own personal map. And over unknown, uncharted territories would write things. They had heard rumors. So over one continent or landmass, they would write, here be dragons. Kind of pirate talk, you know, here be dragons. <laughs> and over another uncharted area, they would put, here be fiery burning sands. And over another one, here be the abyss. Jesus is the first, the last. He's been through it. So the Christian can write on his map, your personal life map, your present experience, your future, all the way into eternity. Here be Christ. He's been through it all. He knows the end from the beginning. He's at the end of the finish line waiting to welcome us home. The first, the last. I've been there. I know it all. Next, there is something else that is to console them, and that is a parenthesis that Jesus gives. 
He has a different value system. He says they are rich. In verse 9, I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you are rich. Who's he writing to? Poverty-stricken Christians in the midst of a wealthy, prosperous, unbelieving city. The world would say, you're nothing, man. Look what happened to you. You believe in your God. You don't have a job. You are the rejected ones of our society. But Jesus says, you're rich. You know, his value system is different from the world's. The world would say, oh, we applaud your success. Listen, high school, college, master's, doctorate, you're so prosperous. All that success, Jesus would say, not necessarily so. You can be a wealthy, poor man as well as a poor, rich man. You are rich, says Jesus, to these poor, suffering believers. Would you notice something else, and it's not even here. Turn over to chapter 3. Verse, well, it's the church of Laodicea. Verse 17. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Quite a report card. I'd rather have the world against me than Jesus, wouldn't you? I'd rather have the world say, you're nothing, man. You're rejected. You are a loser. And have Jesus say, you're a winner than for the world to say, you are awesome, we love you, and have Jesus say, you've lost. I'd rather have his stamp of approval. And of course they have it. Then he offers them finally the crown of life. He says, be faithful unto death at the end of verse 10. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's Jesus at the end of the finish saying, I have your laurel crown, your wreath, the victor's crown. Just keep coming, be faithful. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? That's spiritual death. Those in Smyrna were facing persecution and physical death. But they'd only die once. They'd be forever with Jesus in eternity. Unbelievers have another death to face. It's described in Revelation chapter 20. This is what it says. And everyone stood before this throne, this great white throne, those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. And all those whose names were not written were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. You're going to die. You say, thanks a lot. Well, you should know that by now. We're all going to die. Unless the Lord comes and raptures us, we're dead. But you'll only die once if you are a believer this morning in Jesus Christ. Why will I only die once? Because you've been born twice. You've been born again. But if you haven't been born again and you are still in your sins as an unbeliever, you will die twice. Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. The second death is to be feared more than the first death. So here's Jesus. He knows and he comforts. Things may get better if you're suffering this morning. They may. They may stay the same. They may get worse. Know this. The first, the last, has been through it. He will go through it with you, and he will be there when you emerge out the other end. It could be that you're not suffering today. Most of us are not suffering like this, certainly. In fact, maybe this study isn't relating to us. 
because we don't have the same exact situation. I would ask that when we go home this week, as a body of Christ, this week especially, we would remember those who are in the body of Christ all around the world, our brothers and sisters, we don't know them by name, but in spirit we know they suffer. They're being persecuted. They've lost their jobs. They're being threatened. Their families are being hurt because they love Jesus. Remember them in prayer. Stand with them as a brother or sister. And make sure that if you get persecuted, it's for the right reason. I want to close with something that somebody handed me. It's from Paul Harvey's radio show. And uh, it's a true story. usually is. This is how it goes. Oh, man, oh, man, they won't invite Pastor Joe to the Kansas State Legislature again. They invited Pastor Joe Wright of Wichita's Central Christian Church to deliver the invocation, and he told God on them. Now God knows what they've been up to. No sooner had their guest chaplain concluded his prayer then three representatives on the state legislature were on their feet at the microphones protesting. He can't talk like that about us. Representative Delbert Gross considered the invocation gross, calling it divisive, sanctimonious, and overbearing. Representative David Haley called it blasphemous and ignorant. Representative Sabrina Standifer echoed with the indignation. What in the world did Pastor Joe say in Topeka that incited the righteous wrath of these three representatives from Hayes and Kansas City? I've secured the entire text of this prayer so that you can evaluate it for yourself. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness, to seek your direction and your guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium. We have inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word in the name of moral pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it a lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation, laziness and called it welfare. In the name of choice, we have killed the unborn. In the name of the right to life, we have killed abortionists. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it taxes. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography, and we've called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God. Know our hearts today. Try us and show any wickedness in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of Kansas and who have been given and been ordained by you to govern this great state. Grant them your wisdom to rule. May their decisions direct us to the center of your will. I ask it in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When you pray like that and you live like that,
When you pray and live like that, you will not be applauded just like you applauded this man. The world will not applaud you, but your Father in heaven will. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to live a witness and to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. We don't go looking for it, but it is inevitable. May we not grow bitter because of it, but have the chance to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray.